1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kate Carpenter, one of the hosts of this channel, and today I'm excited to be talking with Anne Velizis about her new book, Abalone, the Remarkable History and Uncertain Future of California's Iconic Shellfish. Anne Velizis, welcome to the show. Hi, Kate. I'm really glad to be here. I'm very glad to have you. I really enjoyed this book. Um, I'm wondering if you could start out just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah,
0: sure. I am an independent scholar and environmental historian. Independent scholar means that I'm not affiliated with a particular research institution. I just um, am an individual who has a passion for environmental history. I studied it as an undergraduate and as a graduate student, and I just ended up, my life path took me to just dig in to start writing books about environmental history. And um, I'm probably one of those rare people who is doing what I studied, and I've just had a long, a long passion for writing environmental history. So, uh, that's what I do. I've, this is my third book. I'm kind of, uh, embarrassed in most circles to say that it takes me, it seems like it takes me a long time to write a book, but I think historians understand and get that, uh, there's so much work and so much time involved in, in research and learning. Uh, so it's probably something that, uh, environmental historians understand. Anyway, so, uh, That's what I do, Um, and I love to also speak about my books. I do a lot of public speaking, and I like to interface with... um, not, I mean, my audience is not just academic. I should say, actually, it's not academic. My audience generally is trying to bring environmental history to people, uh, a broader audience of people who I think should be fascinated by these stories that we as environmental historians tell about connections between people and nature through time. So, um, you know, that's kind of how I target my writing. I try to engage um, the broader audience.
1: That's fantastic. And it it is quite clear in this book that you have done a large amount of research on just a remarkable range of subjects just for this one book. So I'm not at all surprised to find that that they take you a little while, and I'm glad that we get to read the result. I'm curious to know, since this is your third book, what brought you to the subject of abalone? Well, you know,
0: it's kind of a one book does lead to another in different ways. My first Mm -hmm. book, which was about the history of wetlands in the United States, first gave me... Um, kind of a window into the importance of shellfish uh, in our in the past history of the United States and also of the world. Um, and then when I wrote a book about the history of Americans' relationship with food, his, uh, called Kitchen Literacy, how we lost knowledge of food and why we need to get it back, um, I came up again, I kind of was reading about shellfish history again and how important a food source it was in the 19th century, but pollution destroyed shellfish. And so when I was casting around for my next project I was really thinking about uh, also wild foods and shellfish as in general something that might be an interesting topic and at that time I happened to be taking a trip down in California and um I found a abalone shell and it was it was literally inspiring to me because it was beautiful. It was stunning. Abalone shells are have this brilliant iridescence unlike any other shell. It's hard to describe. They just are um, just glimmering and glowing um, in this fabulous uh, way, captivating way. Um, and so I wanted to know more about the animal that made that shell. Just uh, And as I started to dig, I realized that California Um, abalone have uh, a fabulously complex and fascinating cultural and ecological history um and so it just set me on this path of learning so much about california history prehistory and um about marine biology and the history of science of how we've come to understand marine ecosystems and um You know, I really, what I really wanted to know though is how it is that we can let animals like abalone that we actually cherish, there was a tremendous culture of loving and appreciating abalone in California, especially um, in the 20th century, how we can let animals like that. Become deeply imperiled because um, now there's actually seven species of abalone on the west coast, and most of them are imperiled, including two on the endangered species list as endangered. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, it was a history that had uh, so much of richness and an urgency. Like we had to under, we have to understand these stories better if we want to, uh, you know, ch- uh, steward our marine life better into the future.
1: Absolutely. I was um, astonished by the richness of this history, and, and I'm excited to talk all about that. But I, I want to stop for a moment and talk about one of my very favorite parts of this book, which is when you describe the extremely surprising way that the iridescence of an abalone shell occurs. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: I know, and that you know that was one of those challenges as a as a historian and writer how to talk about this iridescence, which mm-hmm. I actually was so compelled by um, and so one of the ways I tried to do it was to study a little bit about well, what is the history of understanding iridescence, and I went back into the science and found out that um and this is actually one of the things I found sort of to be fun in the whole book, that iridescence has like this universal appeal. People become fascinated by it, you know, like through time, cross cultures. Um, And I went back and I found that this fellow, William Brewster, who turned out to be the fellow who also studied, who also invented kaleidoscopes, was one of the first people to study iridescence. And he found, um, he started uh, to find that it's caused not, you know, it's not a color by a pigment. It's what we are now calling structural colors, colors that are made up of. Um, and so it's created by a structure that's like a micro lattice of tiny um, calcium aragonite tiles sort of stacked up. 150 of them could fit on the tip of a human hair. Um, and the way light comes into these tiles is, um, it is. Uh, it hits the surface and then the layers of these stacked tiles and is uh, diffracted. And the thickness of the tiles is similar to wavelengths of light, and they fall into phase, and it's just like just the right situation to create this sweet spot of brilliant uh, and captivating light. So anyway, it's kind of this freewheeling thing in nature, but it is underlain by the very highly structured. Uh, natural format. And what's so cool about it too is the abalone just makes this shell. It really doesn't have, um, you know, the the beauty that we see and experience is not uh, why it makes the shell. It makes the shell strong. And so the beauty is kind of a, a side effect of the animal's need to make a very strong shell, of course, in an ocean of predators. Anyway, it was a really fun thing to do the scientific research uh, on that on that part of it.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's just such a such a delightful thing to learn about. And I, I hope that readers or the listeners will become readers and check out the book because there are also some really great illustrations and, and images that help kind of show what's happening there and that that structure that creates that. That yeah, I kind of um, felt
0: like the the animal sort of crystallizes, you know, the beauty of the ocean <laughs> and basically all of this, you know, the beauty of water and some of the character of water into a hard structure. So it's really cool.
1: Yes, it's such a good description of it. And it seems like that speaks to some of why people are so sort of captivated by Avalonia and the way that yeah um, they have a bit of a poetry to their, the way they appear.
0: Absolutely. So, absolutely.
1: You, <laughs> you uncover in this book a very long and complicated history of abalone. And I'm wondering, uh, this is a big ask, but could you sort of walk us through some of the high and low points of that history and how you kind of lay them out in in the book? Yeah, it is is—it is a, a big ask, but
0: I will do my best. <laughs> it is an it's an epic story, and that's actually one of the things that appealed to me. I mean, a lot of times, you know, in history, we're asked to kind of focus on a small thing, but I was really drawn to the epic of this story. This this story takes place over 13,000, well, it goes back even beyond 13,000 years. You know, abalone have lived on the West Coast for probably 70 million years. And then about 13,000 years ago, or maybe a little bit more, when um, people started to come and inhabit the West Coast, likely following a kelp forest highway along the, the coast and uh, you know the peopling of California, um, it turns out that abalone is, uh, remains of abalone shells are some of the very earliest evidence of human habitation and, and subsistence in California. So that's really cool. You know, we have evidence of an abalone dinner eaten by somebody like 13,000 years ago. And so I took that as sort of a, you know, an anchor point, people using abalone for subsistence. And then through time, you know, people started, um, indigenous people started to use the shells for much more, uh, much broader uh, uses for tools and ornaments and trade and ceremonial purposes, all these really wonderful cultural uh, purposes, and, you know, started to have uh, meet different meanings um, and, va- and value to people. So all that was, you know, this very interesting history that took place before uh, colonization and white people showed up. Uh, it was fascinating to unearth using a combination of ethnography, anthropology, and um, archaeological resources. Um, And then uh, when white people showed up, basically, they came first to the West Coast um, looking for furs and to participate in the fur trade came first. And um, I uncovered a really interesting vein of this story whereby um, when white people showed up on the West Coast, they were, of course, fascinated by abalone and started carrying them north and using them to trade in the, sh- in the fur trade. Um, and ultimately what happened is the fur trade, which was focused on, you know, beavers, river otters, but sea otters, killing off sea otters unwittingly started to unravel the undersea marine environment in ways that nobody uh, could and you know with consequences nobody could anticipate basically when the sea otters were decimated uh, they are a primary predator of abalone the abalone were left to flourish and became super abundant they uh without predation they grew and grew they were eating kelp they um Kind of had a big abalone orgy and ended up piling up, uh, you know, in the nearshore environment. Um, and even out to, you know, depths of like 60 to hundred feet. I mean, it was just a lot of abalone and then this is sort of the most inter- very interesting part as more white people showed up. Um, and as, of course as indigenous people were displaced or killed off, um, when white people showed up, they saw this abundance of abalone and they thought that was the natural state of affairs of the coast. And abalone kind of became, you know, just sort of an icon of abundance um, ultimately in California. But people didn't realize what they were seeing was sort of uh, a result of an, of an ecosystem that was already disrupted, kind of out of whack. Um, and um, that was really fascinating because people... Uh, scientists, fishery managers did not realize that for like over a hundred years. And so we were basically um, managing and trying to, um, you know, keep a fishery going, having the wrong story to begin with. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just go back and tell a little bit more. The first, as you can tell, this is, this epic goes on. Yeah. the, The first big fishery that happened for abalone after they, you know, grew in these epic proportions, um, came about when Chinese Americans or Chinese immigrants came to America during the Gold Rush. Uh, at first, white people and Europeans were not familiar with abalone. It turns out uh, the meat is really tough; it's hard to eat if you don't know what you're doing. But on the other side of the Pacific, Asian Americans had a tremendous fondness and culture of appreciation of abalone, meat, and shell also. So when Chinese immigrants came and saw all these abalone, um, they started uh, one of the first big export fish uh, industries in California, an export fishery for abalone. Um, so they literally went and started to collect these animals that were in super abundance, big, in big numbers, um, millions of pounds a year of shells and meat. They would dry them and on the beach, and um, and then put them into big bundles and ship them to, to China. Um, and that part of the story was also super interesting, because uh, it intersected with these uh, intense uh, racism of the time, and uh, in the understanding of fisheries, and um, kind of uh, real xenophobia that was gripping california at that time so it was interesting to kind of tweeze that some of that stuff apart or try to try to tweeze it apart it was really hard to do because both um, what happened is ultimately people started to become concerned that too many abalone were being taken by this fishery uh, because their baseline their natural uh their perception of what was natural was that was one of abundance. And so the fishery was really visibly diminishing this. So that was a really impar- important and interesting part of the story. Um, and that led to some of the first calls for conservation of abalone. And that started kind of in sync with the conservation of wildlife movement that we had going in the late 19th century Uh you know, throughout the United States as a result of decimation of creatures like bison and on the Atlantic coast, fisheries like shad and Atlantic salmon, passenger pigeon, you know, all these creatures that are, you know, we have stories of loss. Abalone fit right into that. And and so there were calls for how are we going to restore, how are we going to conserve these animals? Um, so for a hun- one of the things that I found fascinating is for 100 years people did try to you know conserve abalone and um, but it was really hard to do because um, because uh, you know as the animal became a commodity uh, there were tremendous market forces to, of course to can it and then eat it fresh and ultimately. And they also developed a recreational fishery whereby abalone developed this other kind of meaning. People love to go and fish abalone themselves and, you know, have that experience of going to the ocean and, and eating a shellfish. And uh, so that's part of the story, too. And that's, you know, where abalone became this really iconic creature um, and important in the economy. And when when that is the case, it becomes very difficult, you know, to conserve it, especially because we didn't have the understanding of the biology right. Um, And I'll just fast forward, I mean, to to help to finish your question about the story (laughs) is where it all goes is ultimately the fishery, the animal declines um, in part because of overfishing, but also because of changing ocean conditions. Um, We start having more El Ninos. Uh, and, you know, of course, now we're having more uh, changing ocean with uh, climate change. And so uh, all, all the time when we have animals that are uh, becoming imperiled, it's many uh, things that are coming together all at once that contribute to uh, their demise. Oh, I should mention too, the sea otters came back, which was an interesting part of the story. So anyway, that's, uh, I trace all that and also trace at the end, some really hopeful efforts to try to begin to restore these animals and, um, that are really exciting and hopeful. And the scientists who really kind of had to work on doing that. So that's, that's the story. Uh, lots of pieces, <laughs> but all of them are interesting. To Absolutely.
1: Me. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's a wonderful story, and it's it's just remarkable how much there is at play in in these conversations, and sort of in the cultural meaning of abalone that um, is built up in a variety of cultures, and and takes different forms over time. I, I'm interested. One thing that really struck me, and maybe it's because I train as a historian of science, but it's that when it comes to management and conservation. In this story, we see a lot of places where policies that were implemented early on based on either incorrect information or just incomplete continue to really sort of stick around and influence decisions even after scientific understandings had changed. Um, I'm wondering if you see that as something that has anything to teach us about environmental legislation and management.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Kate. I mean, it was almost, I mean, I kind of kept thinking of it as almost like a historic hangover. Um, You know, there was (laughs) this idea that abalone were super abundant. And as long as, you know, and there was an idea that they could reproduce every year and they put out so many eggs and reproductive gametes that there was just no way to ever, um, you know, diminish them. That became the dominant idea. There was also an idea that, you know, as long as we fished with size limits, that sort of size would be a refuge for them, that there'd be always many to take. And that's, you know, it's a simple idea. It kind of got into the mind of fishermen and um, and managers. It's how we manage fish, you know. And so I, I kind of all, also found myself scratching my head to say, well, why do you think fishing for fish and fishing for shellfish. These are actually, abalone are kind of long lived creatures. They have a very different biology. Mm -hmm. Why is that the same? But it just became a mantra of like, Hey, this is the way, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And, um, and even after, uh, Sea otters came back, and, um, meaning that they they never left. There was a vestigial population that started to rebound and started to eat those surplus abalone, and it was a very interesting moment historically because it kind of all of a sudden cast this light that sh- said that showed that the way people had been thinking about abalone and kind of marine ecology of these kelp forests was not accurate even after that, it was just very hard to, to understand it and to tweeze it apart. It was like a, it was a paradigm change, a shift, a moment of shifting thought. And, um, and so we glommed onto the simple things. And, um, I think, you know, at times of change, people cling to what they know and what they're, um, their lived experience is. And this was another really thing, something I thought was really interesting. You know, in people's lived experience, and their lived memories, many people experienced abalone abundance, and then they experienced abalone loss. uh, And they just felt sad about it. They felt lost because these were vital experiences that people really valued. They felt angry about it. They felt angry at, you know, state agencies. They felt angry at sea otters. But there was a real mismatch between kind of the lived and remembered experience and the larger ecological experience or history that sort of a longer term perspective reveals, you know. And so um, Mm -hmm. I found that to be a really interesting, interesting thing when it really made me feel more strongly about how important environmental history is and and sharing it more broadly helping people to understand not only do ecosystems change over time but our thinking and knowledge of them changes over time as well you know so i don't sure. know if i've asked your question but i think it's really oh, yeah. uh, it's a really important point yeah we have these historic hangovers uh, you know that persist into the public uh you know consciousness and into agency consciousness and how um how science new science uh ultimately gets becomes influential is i I think an important question it's hard
1: absolutely I'm curious on a different note, um, if you could talk a little bit about how you researched this book. It's clear that there's a lot of archival research, but I also get the sense from some parts of the book that you also sort of went and were able to experience things firsthand and talk to people who um, had their own memories of abalone. So could you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah. And I think this comes from, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm an independent scholar. I my, This is sort of a funny little quirky thing. But when I started out, uh, my husband and I actually lived in a van for about 12 years, you know, so we we're like the OG people who live in a van. I mean, we, we, I used to call myself the Road Scholar, R-O-A-D. Um, and I, because my husband is actually a journalist and photographer, he likes to, he, we both traveled and kind of did our research as we went. Um, and so I've always had that sense of it's really great to go to the places and experience the places and um So, you know, I did that. I was in California going to archives and doing all that stuff. But I did also reach out to um, a a chunk of the history basically is from, you know, it's big chunk is from the 60s to the present. And so there were a lot of people who were engaged that I was able to track down. Like I would be reading what they wrote in the 1960s and I could go and track them down and say, hey, you know, what did can you tell me about your experience back then? And um, that was really fascinating and really helped me to understand more broadly what was going on. Um, It also helped me to realize, you know, so often that, you know, as historians, we rely on documents often as sort of the, you know, the hard uh, evidence of what we're, that's how we build our arguments. And yet, that that is has its limits because sometimes documents are put forth to, um, you know, maybe confuse things or to hide things, um, <laughs> and so it was really talking to people that enabled me to see through some of that. Or uh, I mean, it's always challenging also to to get different perspectives, um, and uh, you know, I. Our challenge as historians is to tell a bigger story, not to get go into all of the the details, and yet having some of that understanding about um, how things happen in bureaucracies, how uh, individuals perceive things and their own personal experiences, and how that they bring what they bring, um, I think helped me to develop a, a richer experience. And it was super fun. I mean, I got to go, I mean, I would say just a total highlight of my research was I got to go out to the Channel Islands National Park, which is sort Mm. of a stronghold of abalone. Uh, Right now, it's a very, it's these wonderful islands off the coast of Southern California. It's sometimes called America's Galapagos. And, um, you know, I got to go out there and see that place and learn from the biologists there who were Taking surveys of black abalone, which is the one intertidal species. Um, I'm not a diver, so I I did go snorkeling once, also, um, but I didn't I didn't mm-hmm. dive, you know, with scuba tanks or anything. Um, but but having those experiences was was absolutely necessary because um, there's just a lot of this story about underwater uh, that I wouldn't have had experience with, and um, you know, so it was it was absolutely crucial for me to travel and to, to see, and, uh, as well as to do the archival research. It was also important to get, try to get some other perspectives, you know, like reaching out to indigenous people to try to get their perspectives and, um, and to try to figure out how to, how to talk about prehistory, um, what we call prehistory. I mean, the period of history from about 13,000 years ago until, uh, colonization. So it, it was, Absolutely. it was an, ad, it was an adventure. And I think, you know, having, I mean, research it for those of us who are, you know, historians, or kind of nerdy people, right? And to some degree is always an adventure, but having it have outdoor elements and, uh, you know, connecting to places and people made it even more an adventure. I mean, and I wish I could have written about more of those experiences as mm-hmm. well.
1: Yeah, that sounds wonderful. In fact, it, it really lends the book a, a strong sense of place that I think sometimes histories can be lacking. And, and I have to be honest that reading it now in a time of COVID and limited travel, it was also just sort of nice to imagine myself in Monterey or the Channel Islands. So I appreciate yeah. that component of the book too. That's um, great. I'm curious to know, in the, in the course of all of your research, were there things that particularly surprised you?
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely, there were things that surprised me. And um, I think perhaps the biggest thing that surprised me is, you know, as I described, I was kind of captivated by this animal in the shell, and I wanted to learn about it. And um, it turned out that uh, a big chunk of the story ended up really being a policy battle between um, different users of abalone, commercial divers, and recreational divers who kind of, uh, you know, pointed fingers at each other for taking too many of abalone. And um, and that so many other perspectives were, were just not part of the discussion ever. You know, I mean, there was never, uh, I mean, indigenous people were not part of um, the discussion. Uh, other people in California who I know, I mean, just I will speak as somebody who loved to find a piece of shell on the beach or Appreciate seeing black oyster catchers eating, uh, you know, little invertebrates in the intertidal zone. I mean, just people who might appreciate having these animals as kindred spirits with us in ecosystems and appreciate the larger. None of that was ever part of the discussion. It was always kind of like how many, like allocations. There's a pie and one, one group gets some and another group gets some. And that was, you know, the extent of it. So that, I think, was the biggest uh, surprise for me. And I, I am aware that that is, you know, that's kind of the way a lot of wildlife management for animals that we, for wild animals that we use as foods is conducted. Um, you know, it's, it's all about the the product value rather than some of these other broader values that I think we have. And so, uh, you know, it's sort of, I think people were not aware. That's another thing actually that's been even more interesting since my book has come out is that I've, you know, had many people who are readers say, gosh, you know, I didn't know this is what happened with abalone. I kind of always wondered what happened to them. They were a big part of my experience as a young person. And this is, you know, people who are now in their 60s and 70s or even older, and then they disappeared, you know, and so... um, I think that was also a surprise how an animal that could have such um, a presence on the coast and be such an important part of the place could really um, kind of disappear without uh, without much ado. You know, that was also uh, surprising. How about you? Did you have anything that was surprising?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, you know, I was fascinated by the culture of skin diving. I didn't know... Yes. Um, about the sort of growth of these these clubs, in fact, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that just because I found it such a such a sort of quirky and interesting part of this history
0: yeah, it was it was fascinating you know there was um you know this history of people going out to California, and of course uh, the water in Southern California is warm and um during the depression, people started going out deeper. And I tell a little story about the first diving club, the bottom scratchers, where, you know, some guys um, made masks and started to go deeper into the water. And they realized, oh, my gosh, there's abalone and fish and all these things we can catch and bring back to eat. And um, so that was, you know, one vein of people being interested in going out fishing. And, uh, you know, so there was this sport fishing and kind of Pot fishing, if you if you would call it during the Depression, that started it, and then um, you know it just morphed into a big thing with the advent of scuba after World War II, and you know it became kind of a cultural thing with Jacques Cousteau, who was a very famous marine biologist going underwater, and um, there were some TV shows that kind of popularized it, and. For people who lived on the coast, I mean, you know, it's becoming more and more urban, but you could go out and have your own adventure and go underwater and see these worlds that nobody had seen before. Um, It was camaraderie. People would go out and get seafood and bring it back and have beach parties. And so um, it was just kind of a a wonderful part of place and culture for a while, and the the diving club scene grew and grew because because of scuba diving had technical aspects to it. You really had to learn how to do it, and so clubs were a way people could could learn. Um, so anyway, it was a very interesting uh, little part of the story. Mm-hmm.
1: I I also <laughs> this is a small thing, but another thing that surprised me and was a bit heartbreaking was um you you recount these issues of Sunset Magazine in which they publish not only advice on diving for abalone, but then also recipes. And then sort of toward the end of this period, you have this one recipe that suggests that they also buy a couple of cans of uh, clams just in case they aren't able to find enough abalone to, to make the recipe. And it really is such a sort of cultural moment of, of seeing it fade right there in print.
0: I know. And, you know, that was, um, you know, I was describing to you earlier how kind of they disappeared without much ado. And that, you know, I was kind of searching for the outrage and the evidence of, well,, do people care about this? And I just found,, um, you know, there weren't there weren't those articles of outrage and stuff, but that particular um, recipe, yeah, I just found that to be so troubling and and as you say marking a moment when you know sorry you're gonna have to use canned clams and i just you know i worry about that with our with our marine seafoods the wild foods that we eat uh still Mm -hmm. and 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 this is how this is how it happens you know anyway we don't realize it as consumers or people who value these seafoods or we don't um we may recognize it and think somebody else is gonna take care of it or whatever and i think that's um you know people in California just didn't see it coming and then it came too fast and it it, it just it, it never gained traction in part because the fishery is relatively small so the the commodity part of it was relatively small compared to all the other big fisheries and then you know as i described when sea otters came back there was also a perception that maybe sea otters would just eat all the abalone and so the, that conservation of them might be futile. And that was a really, you know, kind of a vexing uh, aspect of it as well. But um, it's a a very unique and interesting story, I'd say.
1: I'm, I'm wondering, as you research this, you know, between that sort of quietness over the decline of abalone, and then, you know, there are several moments in the book where conservation attempts are made are unsuccessful or only have limited success and are then often set back um, soon thereafter. Did you find this to be a discouraging book to research? Yeah.
0: I mean, that was discouraging, definitely. And, um, you know, and I mean, when I started, I kind of knew where this was all going. I knew that these animals were in trouble, frankly, it took me 10 years to write this book. And in the 10 years it took me to write this book, things got worse. You know, I mean, at the Mm -hmm. beginning, I was sort of, um, you know, I describe how the species in Southern California were kind of doing worse. And Northern California, still the, the red abalone of Northern California, which had been more tightly managed, there was never a commercial fishery there. And, you know, that that might be an example for good management, and then we had, um, you know, the, what what we've come to call the perfect storm on the northern California coast with a uh, marine heat waves, sea star wasting disease um, that caused a trophic cascade where there's an urchin explosion. They ate all the kelp, and then we had a bunch of abalone die and starve, and so um, and now we have no kelp and no urchins, and I mean tons of urchins and. Um, So anyway, this, the story has gotten more dire in Northern California, and yet there's hope in Southern California. There's some rebounding of some of those species, the beginnings of them. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's frustrating and discouraging that people could not get it together to restrain themselves, you know? And I mean, I think that's a frustration that uh, many of us who have, um, who care about nature, the natural world and humanity's future in the natural world, um, are frustrated about and worry about. And that was definitely a part of this story and frustration.
1: Mm, For sure. What, what then is kind of your, your big takeaway in reading and writing, um, this book about the future of abalone or, or maybe to put it (laughs) much more broadly, what, what do you hope it teaches us about the role of humans on the planet and in our environment? Well,
0: you know, I came to see abalone as kind of a sentinel animal, certainly, for the perils of climate change. I mean, it was just much, it's an animal that's much more vulnerable than we thought it was. And I think that may be the case with all, with other wild animals that we use as foods. You know, we are continuing to use models and management modalities that come from, uh, you know, this, I that come from the idea of maximizing harvest and that we can have a sustainable fishery if we maximize harvest and somehow that don't take into account all these other variables that we're now facing, um, these environmental variables that are so important and that we probably really need to be taking a more precautionary approach. Um, And it's hard because, um, you know, fishermen, uh, commercial and recreational. And, you know, we don't have them. The abalone fishery is totally closed at this point. But, you know, in other fisheries we see, I mean, people don't want to close the fisheries, of course. They don't want to ratchet them back, of course. Um, so there's always a challenge there. And so I think this is a, it's yet another cautionary tale. Um, you know, we have so many, but but that's, that's my takeaway. And it's also was my hope to, talk about animals, you know, there's a lot of stories about, you know, declining wildlife, but to talk about animals that we value not only, you know, as wildlife, but as food and animals that have been such a deep part of our culture, I really wanted to go into that because I thought, you know, I mean, it sort of makes those animals more vulnerable, even as we value them more, you know, it's just incredibly ironic um, and tragic.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you've mentioned values a couple of times while we've been chatting, and and you mentioned that often our management is sort of focused on a um, a value of production and consumption, uh, but that that we might consider other values that maybe we already have and we just don't factor into these discussions. What what values would you like to see us embrace when it talks when we we talk about conservation and management?
0: Well, as I was saying, I think we need to have more different perspectives. Um, included. And, um, you know, one of the things I learned by researching um, some perspectives of indigenous people on California's coast are, uh, you know, that abalone are valued as uh, not only for subsistence and not only for their shells that have tremendous ceremonial purposes, but kind of as kindred creatures in the world. And I, I think that perspective is uh, A really interesting and important perspective, Um, and you know, I think it's it's kind of kindred to ecological perspectives, but from a different from a different angle. You know that these animals have, um, and many animals have roles in the world to play that are not just uh, about what we want to get out of them they uh, you know they play roles in ecosystems too you know abalone actually keep the reefs uh, clear so that the ab- so the other creatures like urchins don't take over and that helps create space for um, some other organisms to you know to take hold so that they can have their lifespan as well um, they are they convert little crumbs of kelp into energy f- as part of the food web you know so, Anyway, I think those broader values. And then just as I was describing, just in a very personal sense, as a beachcomber, I, you know, my life has been enriched by walking down a beach and finding a beautiful shell. And um, that may in some way sound trivial, but through history, I've seen that people have been moved by beauty again and again. And I mm. just, um, I kind of feel like that's a valuable experience that should be part of um, what we think about too um, you know it may not be uh, as big of a deal but uh, you know I'd I'd like to see that be part of a value that's considered that we can have a world where people can find beautiful shells not a world where um, you know these animals that have been valued for uh, millennia are going to go extinct
1: Mm -hmm. so absolutely that uh, brings us nicely full circle too back to the the iridescence that we were speaking about at the beginning and and the idea that there is a sort of widespread cultural value for that beauty and that shimmer. Um, that and
0: I'd like possess. to just say one other thing about that, that I, you know, I, I'm a hopeful person and I, um, mm-hmm. you know, I do not end a book on despair. I'm always looking for hope because, um, that's just who I am, and also because I think it's there. And one of the things I did find also that was so beautiful in this book was to find people who had such a heartfelt commitment to saving these animals, to protecting them, and figuring out how to restore them um, because of culture and because of their values. And I, you know, I found that human impulse to restore and to um, to regenerate. To be a beautiful thing too, and um, and so I'm hoping, you know, that that's something that abalone can show us and teach us. And um, one of the things I found fascinating in my study of other cultures valuing abalone is that uh, they were often those beautiful shells were often associated with vision, um, and you know, vision for you know, literally, but also um, figuratively. Um, and I just often kind of came back to that of abalone, that brilliant shell, sh- you know, kind of, do we need to look into the shell and can it show us something? Does it show us something about the future? Um, seemed like, seems like it does, you know, because of it has that very unique and universally compelling shell.
1: Yeah. And that is an excellent note to end on. So I think. We will leave it there, and I've I've taken up a bunch of your time at this point. But I just want to thank you so much for doing this interview. And before we go, I'm hoping you can tell us maybe a little bit about what you're working on these days, or if you have anything coming up that you'd like to promote.
0: Well, I'm just I'm actually still working on um, promoting my book or getting it out into Mm -hmm. the world and doing talks. My book kind of fell into the uh, pandemic hole because it came out Mm -hmm. the week of peak pandemic. And so it's kind of been slow to get reviews or, you know, attention. So if anybody is interested um, in, you know, having me speak to classes, or uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, online talks and things like that, or has other ideas about collaboration and and getting the word out, um, I'd certainly welcome talking to anybody. That's my priority now. And then I'm it takes me a while to uh, think about the next topic for a book. but um, So anyway, I'd, I'd certainly welcome, welcome that. Um, if anybody's interested in talking more about abalone, certainly be in touch. You can go to my website, www.annvalicis.com to find me.
1: Excellent. I hope they do. As as they can tell from this podcast, you uh, are a fascinating person to listen to talk about this subject and I've really enjoyed having you on today. I hope that um, all of our listeners will go and Pick up a copy of Abalone, The Remarkable History and Uncertain Future of California's Iconic Shellfish out from Oregon State University. Um, um, Well, Anne, I just want to thank you for being on the show today. Well, it's been a total pleasure, Kate. Thanks so much for talking Abalone with me. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us again on new books and environmental studies. Everyone take care of yourselves.